Hey everyone, it's Kevin with the Better Bible Reading Podcast, and welcome to another edition of Teaching Thursdays. Before I get into the content of this particular episode, I just want to give a shout out to everybody listening and say a big thank you, because here on the Better Bible Reading Podcast, we have now made it over the 500 download mark, and that is uh, a big uh, monumental thing for me uh, starting this podcast from scratch. So I certainly want to say thank you. And in addition to that, last week's episode was the most downloaded uh, in quite some time, and especially the most downloaded ever in such a short length of time. So thank you so much for all of your support. And if you have been blessed by this podcast, I would love um, for you to share this with somebody you think would really benefit from it. I am on all of the major platforms, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, you name it. I have put this podcast on there. So the more people I can reach, the better. I'd be super grateful uh, for your help with that. On this episode, we are talking about our responsibility of grace. That might seem like a strange topic. And really what we're talking about is the content of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This podcast episode is especially going to be helpful for you if you've asked the questions such as, why does God allow suffering? Or maybe you're familiar with the content of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 when Paul mentions something about receiving God's grace in vain. If you wondered about that, we're going to cover that in this episode. If you've also wondered just about 2 Corinthians in general, what is this letter about? How is it different from 1 Corinthians? This is going to be an episode that will help you in answering all of those questions. So sit back, relax, enjoy. Thank you for listening to the Better Bible Reading Podcast. And without further ado, here's our discussion about our responsibility of grace. This morning, um, the title that I've given to this class is our responsibility of grace. And it's not normal that we necessarily associate those two words together, grace and responsibility, um, because it almost sounds like grace and works. And those are often opposed, especially in our minds in, uh, in Reformed theology. And uh, I think that this chapter actually uh, will help us make a good distinction but also make a good pairing of the two ideas of grace and responsibility and how that all works together. But uh, this morning, um, we're looking at 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is, I think, an often neglected book in the New Testament uh, because, as is the case when you have two books that share the same name, like Corinthians or Thessalonians or Timothy, or Peter, it's almost always the case that one of those two is going to get neglected over the other. I think a lot of us in here probably do a good job of maybe being able to articulate what the content of 1 Corinthians is, because there's so much practicality in it. There's so much this doctrine is covered than this one. There's a sequential order to things in 1 Corinthians. And if nothing else, we go to it all the time when we think about the Lord's Supper and the instructions for it. Um, but I think when it comes to Corinthians, it's 2 Corinthians that's neglected. And 
this chapter in particular, I think, does a really good job of giving a broad view of the whole book. Um, it's kind of Paul's thesis message. It's kind of his big idea of this whole book, Second Corinthians. And I think our responsibility of grace is a good way of wording um, what he's really telling us to get after in this chapter in particular. So we're going to look at this chapter, and I think as we look at it, we're going to be able to have a good view of the whole letter and kind of help us with our case of neglect that may happen from time to time. Uh, maybe you're not neglect, neglecting this book, and if that's the case, then that's good. Uh, but I hope that this might stir you up a little bit um, to spend some more time in Second Corinthians. Um, and so we're going to look in three segments of this. We're going to actually do a survey of the whole chapter. But I want to look at it in, in three different places. And uh, the first one is going to be the first two verses in chapter 6. Um, if somebody would like to read verses 1 and 2, um, you can go for it. Okay, thanks. So, 2 Corinthians is written in a different format than your other New Testament letters especially. And one of the ways that it's written is with a deep heart of desire. It's not written in the same way that like 1 Corinthians is, which I mentioned. It's heavy on theological categories and heavy on practical application. This particular letter is really heavy with that Heart, deep-hearted desire that Paul has. And for us, especially since we're already removed in terms of time from the original writing, sometimes that's really hard for us to connect with. Because when we're going to the Bible, it's almost always, what does this have for me in here? You know, how does this relate to my life and what I'm doing today? How does this um, really get to the root of what I got going on? And so we're looking for Give, give me some deep theology or give me some practical application for my life. But when we get to this, we're kind of interrupting the middle of this. You know how it goes sometimes when you walk up to two people, you kind of round the corner and, and all of a sudden you can tell that they're in this like deep emotional, not an argument, but just a deep emotional, having a heart to heart, in other words. And you walk up and you almost feel like you've invaded their space. And you're like, oh, let me go the other way. And you kind of slowly back up. That's kind of what's happening here in 2 Corinthians. Paul's having that kind of a conversation with them. And we're just, we've stumbled into the conversation all of a sudden. But as, if we hang around, if we be that awkward third person that hangs around, we'll suddenly realize that it actually has much to do with us. And what we need is a little help to see that. So the problem's not with the book itself. There's not a problem with the book, the way it's written. It's different. It's written differently than um, much of the other New Testament books. But it's not wrong. It's not something wrong with the book. We just need to be oriented and have things um, shown to us. So Paul makes this appeal to the Corinthians in that first verse to not receive the grace of God in vain. That's an interesting um, 
phrase there, receiving the grace of God in vain, and calling them not to receive the grace of God in vain. So let's do a little bit of work here. Um, let's kind of think deeply about our lives for just a minute. And many of us have all kinds of different lives happening right now. Um, maybe some similarities, but maybe not. Maybe we're all in totally different places um, in our lives. But if I were to pull you aside and ask you a big question, just say, what is the purpose of your life? That's one of the big questions that sometimes we have a hard time answering or thinking about. How do you word that in one sentence? How do you articulate that in one sentence? But I would think that all of us, even myself included, if someone asked you, what's the purpose of your life? What's your life all about? You, even if you don't answer right away, you're going to immediately default to those common everyday occurrences of these bills are due soon. I've got to pay them. My job, you're thinking about your job. Maybe you're changing jobs. Maybe you're in the middle of a, um, a tough time at work. You're thinking about your kids. You're thinking about upcoming vacations. You're thinking you're living in, in the wake of your vacation you just finished. For those of you who are back, welcome back to reality now. You're thinking about those issues, what the, what's at the forefront of your life. In other words, you default to kind of the common everyday things that everybody participates in. And I think there's an interesting element for us to think about when we ask the question, what's the purpose of, of your life? Um, let me kind of go off on a rabbit trail for just a minute, and then I'll pull everything back in, hope, hopefully. Um, how many of you have seen, this is kind of a new hype in the last few years, how many of you have seen these, these VR glasses that have kind of become the craze? You can raise your hand so I know you've seen Okay. All right. So they look ridiculous, don't they? Yeah. I mean, and they're so massive that you'd almost think you're going to get neck pain or back pain if you wear them for too long. I mean, they're huge. Like, like, and you think about the, the correlation of technology. Once upon a time, when we first had computers, before my time, but when computers were first coming out, they were humongous. And now we all have these little miniature computers that fit in the palm of our hands that can we can get to anything immediately. Well, it's probably going to be the same thing with the VR glasses. They'll probably eventually turn into contact lenses. You just pop in, and, and there you go. But, you know, when they came out, there was this thing that was advertised, especially those of you who are NBA fans. They had these cameras positioned all around the court. And if you had these VR glasses, which probably cost I don't even know how much, you could put them on in your living room. You could log in to, and you, I'm sure you had to pay a bunch to even do this as well, you could log in to any one of those cameras during the game, and each one of the cameras had a 360-degree view that you could somehow kind of log into. So you were suddenly there in your living room, but you're at the game, and you can look all around as if you're there. And that was this amazing thing that they started advertising. Now, this was probably about two years ago when, when I saw this. I remember another time when my wife and I we were down at the St. John's Town Center, and we were walking past the Microsoft store. And when we looked in there, there was this guy playing one of the games. And he's got all these people kind of around him like you all are with me and like cheering him on. He's wearing the glasses, and 
They can see this big screen of what he sees, but he has no idea if somebody's standing right in front of him getting ready to knock him in the face. I mean, he has no clue. He's, he's dead to reality. He's caught up in his own little virtual reality. And what Paul is doing in this chapter especially is that he is calling us as Christians to, first of all, realize there's nothing foreign about what he's saying. There's nothing foreign about the life he's about to articulate to us. Our problem is not that we don't know how to relate to this. Our problem is that we are actually the people wearing the VR glasses and dead to the true reality. If you think about what VR glasses are, the virtual reality. People in this world live wanting to create their own reality. People in this world live wanting to not really care about whatever else is going on. They just want to build and shape their own little world in their glasses, so to speak. And Paul is telling us, take off the glasses. Take off the glasses. He's not calling us to put on glasses. He's not calling us as people who normally bash Christianity and talk about drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak. Paul's actually saying, you've been drinking the Kool-Aid all your life. Stop drinking it. Take off the glasses and see what true reality is. And here's how he describes true reality. Let me read those first two verses again, and we'll see his flow of thought. Working together with him then, that is God, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, and then he quotes Isaiah 49, 8 here. He says this, In a favorable time I listened to you, And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So a few things happening here. First of all, I want you to notice that there's this direct correlation between grace in verse 1, not to receive the grace of God in vain, and then verse 2, in a favorable time. You think about grace as favor, there's a correlation there. Or you could say, when he quotes Isaiah 49, 8, In a time of grace I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. And then he says, Now is the favorable time. Now is the time of grace. Now is the day of salvation. So here's the problem with, with modern Christianity, especially at least as it's articulated to us in kind of the, the big pictures that we see. Listen to the end of verse 2. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. How many of you have heard that as an evangelistic message? I mean, probably all of us. I mean, when I read that phrase, I almost by default start thinking evangelism, Billy Graham. You start thinking of conversions, right? Well, the problem with that is... Paul's actually talking to believers when he says this. And when we think about now's the favorable time, now's the day of salvation, many people take that concept and think about eternal life. Or in other words, they think about way off in the future when I die, where I'm going to go. Now's the day of salvation. Be saved so that way down the road when you die, you'll go to heaven. There's nothing wrong with thinking about this in an evangelistic frame, but the problem is, how does Paul identify this whole concept? He said, now. 
He doesn't say then. He says now. So Paul is calling us to a life of now, to a life of today. And he's saying this especially to Christians. He's saying it to those who already believe. And so there's this practical element happening here that we don't want to necessarily take this phrase and just say, oh yeah, that's like evangelism type stuff. That's like for new believers type stuff. No, he's talking to believers. He's talking to us. And he's saying to us who already believe, now is the favorable time, now is the day of salvation. So what does that mean? First of all, it means there's a here and now to our salvation and to the grace we participate in. And before you think he's talking about preaching, take a look at verse 3 because he doesn't go there as you might expect him to. So here's the kind of follow-up questions we want to ask before we go to verse 3. First of all, what does it mean to receive the grace of God in vain? Number two, what does it mean to participate today in grace and in the time of salvation? How does that all work together? What does he mean by this? Let's look at verse 3. He says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. What do you think he means by that? What, what would be without necessarily just looking over the whole chapter, what would you say, as stewards of God's grace, what would be an obstacle that we could put in someone's way? We put no obstacle in anyone's way. What are some obstacles we could put in someone's way? And I'm looking for a little bit of participation here. I'm interested where you where does your mind go when you, when you hear that? I'm not looking for a right answer. Just want to I'm sorry? Man-made rules, okay. Somebody else. Conditions. Conditions, okay. What's that? Legalism. Legalism, okay. Anybody else? Something different than those? A little bit different than those? Okay. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Do you ever think of your life as a ministry? Or do you only think about the word ministry as the ministry? We think about Pastor Jesse, minister, the ministry. He's participating in the ministry. We are churchgoers, right? Do you ever think about your life as a kind of ministry? Go ahead. I went to a Baptist church one time, uh, somewhere, and it was a, like a conference. Okay. And the guy says, how many ministers do we have here? And you know, preachers raise their hand, and he says, "No, they're all ministers." Which is, I think, what you're getting. Someone else wrote, "Yeah, good." There's a billboard in Orange Park years ago. Your life may be the only uh, Christian sermon anybody will ever see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen I've seen similar things to that before as well, but. It's a tough question because we don't, we don't want to say something wrong. We, we don't want to say that, okay, well, the whole idea of ministry, let's just throw that out the window. Everybody's a minister. Everybody preaches, right? We don't want to go that far, but we also don't want to say that we are merely spectators if we're not pastors, right? Yes? Everybody not, might not preach, but everybody does worship whether or not they actually think they are or not. 
Right. Yeah. So as we think about our lives as, and by the way, I think we should think about our lives as a ministry, there's a few ways that Paul kind of categorizes that. Before we get to verse 4, I just want you to kind of see this um, line of thought that he's got going. Look back with me to chapter 5. Chapter 5, Paul gives in verse 18, verse 18 of chapter 5. Chapter 5, Paul gives a definition of what the Christian life actually is. In, not in terms of what occurs, but in terms of what we're participating in. In verse 18, verses 18 through 20, this is what Paul says. All this is, I'll tell you what, let me just start in 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, I'm sure many of you have heard this before, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. There's conversion, there's salvation. Now what follows? Verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So that's what he did in us. And now here's what he's using us to do. Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There's the ministry we're all participating in. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. There's the ministry, there's the reconciliation message, there's what we are all participating in from one degree to another. And that's why when Paul starts verse 6, he says, working together with him then. How are we working together with God? Through this ministry that he's given to us of reconciliation. It's what he's doing, but it's what he's letting us participate in. It's what he's done in us, but it's what he wants us to participate in in the lives of others who are not yet saved, who see our life as a demonstration of God's work. And then he says, you know that, you have that comprehension. Now he says, don't receive the grace of God in vain. So there's a direct kind of pairing between here's the responsibility he's given us. Now don't receive his grace in vain. So do you see how those two work together? It's gracious. It's a work of grace that God does in us. It's also a work of grace that God gives us to participate in. And it's a responsibility. It's what he saved us for. So it's not optional. It's not just, well, that's, that's for the, the, the pastors. That's for the preachers. That's for the ministers, right? It's for all of us to participate in. Now, there's different ways that that happens, right? So there's the gospel proclamation, which is what we're involved with every single Sunday when we come here. And what Pastor Jesse or whoever's preaching is preaching, the gospel message, the reality of Christ, what he's done. But then there's a few other ways 
that we also participate in that ministry. And that's a good segue because now we can go to verse 4 and see what that is. Here's what Paul says in verse 4. So here's the first way that we participate in it, at least in the direction that Paul's going. This isn't the only way, but this is the way that he wants us to think about. That is our endurance in trying circumstances. Another way to put it is trials. Passing the test, if you, if you will. Our endurance in trying circumstances. Verse 4 and 5 says this, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Those are definitely situations that need endurance. I don't know how many of you have, as Christians, and because of your Christian faith, participated in beatings, or labors, riots, imprisonments. But even though we don't participate in that directly, at least most of us have it. Maybe some of you like on a, on a mission trip or something like that, maybe you'd spend a night in jail, I don't know. Feel free to share if you have. But that is happening, right? That's happening all over the world right now. And has been. Hasn't happened right here. But it is happening. But in all those situations, even if we're not participating in all of them, we at some time or another have participated in one or more. Because all of us are afflicted at times. All of us have been involved in calamities. All of us have seen times of heavy labor upon us. So there's our need for endurance. And then verse 6 is a beautiful correlation because in verse 5, Paul tells us the need for endurance. Verse 6 tells us the means of endurance. How do we endure? By, notice how he, how he does this. Verse 4 he says, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, etc. And then verse 6 he says, by. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. So there's a, a beautiful picture because here's, here's the problem. Let's go back to our conversation about the whole, the VR glasses and what everybody, when I pull you aside and say, what's the purpose of your life? Everybody defaults to those kind of normal everyday issues. Everybody, Christian or not, has and does participate in afflictions, hardships, calamities. There's nothing especially Christian about those things. Everybody, in some way, shape, or form, is participating in that. It's a common thing. We call it the survival, right? Everybody's trying to survive. How do, we, how do we fight through sleepless nights and hunger? We sleep and we eat. Everybody does this every single day. We fight against that. But what is not common to everyone is going through an affliction in purity going through an affliction in patience, and especially going through an affliction by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. 
those are particular to God's people. So here's kind of what's happening here. Paul says that our ministry of reconciliation is a responsibility that we have. And one of the primary ways that we show this, that we demonstrate this, is in these afflictions. In these times where we need endurance. Now what's interesting about that is you could have Christian going through all of these and non-Christian also going through all of these. And they might both survive through them. But only Christian is going to go through them patiently and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you have Exhibit A, Exhibit B, and what makes Exhibit A stand out? The supernatural means of endurance given to them that shows who their God is. And what happens when they show who their God is? The one, I'm sorry? Absolutely. And it shows the world who God is. It shows the world a demonstration of God's saving work in a person. And Paul is very concerned that they and we are going to put an obstacle in someone's way. Not first and foremost, because we can't rightly give a definition of justification by faith alone. But first and foremost in this context, because we're going to blow it through all of our trials and look just like the world. Stumbling, cussing, you know, just looking like a mess going all the way through it. And then 15 years down the road say, oh yeah, God brought me through that. Yeah, but you sure didn't look like it. You look just like the world. And Paul is concerned that we wouldn't do that. He's concerned that we would understand our responsibility of grace. To go through what he has allowed us to go through. And that goes all the way back to say, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. There's a today element of our salvation. I don't know if you know this, but everyone in here who professes Jesus Christ as their Savior, everyone in here who is a Christian, there's a few things that we need to realize. First of all, that God has saved us. Second of all, that we're still here. What exactly does that mean? If God has saved us and we're still here, the only possible explanation is that He intends for us to be His people here. Not just wake up and say, I can't wait until I die and go to heaven. Or the, the dispensational mindset, I can't wait until the rapture. Let's just get through everything and get to the rapture, right? God wants us to participate in what He's doing now, today, right here. And that's the today element. That's our responsibility of grace. And Paul says that plays itself out, first and foremost, in our trials. And that one stings because, I mean, I can look at my life and think of all the ways that I didn't exemplify Jesus Christ in my trials because I probably looked just like the world all the way through it. And God, in His wisdom and His perfection, can work through that. But it sure doesn't mean that I say, well, he'll, he'll fix it. I'll just, you know, I'll be how I am. I am who I am. No, I want to strive to show who he is through all of it. There's a second element here, and we'll speed it up just a little bit. 
Um, I'll just read here what he says in verse 8. And this kind of goes to what I've already said. How do we show him working in us through our trials? And he says this in verses 8 through 10. Through honor and dishonor. Through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true. As unknown and yet well known. As dying and behold we live. As punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. In a word, we are a living contradiction to the world. Because we have no worldly or tangible reason in the here and now view of things to glorify and honor God. Because they'll say, the world, well, you're a Christian, but you're... God's letting you go through this right now. So how much does he love you really? Or you're no different because you're trying to live the good life and all the same things that are happening to me are happening to you. Why should I be a Christian, right? But Paul's saying that the way that we show our Christianity is not what God keeps us from having to go through, especially in terms of trials, but how we look in them, through them, and on the back end of them. That's where the witness demonstrates itself. Like I said, we've already covered that, but I wanted to show you that that's, that's the conclusion he gets to. So that's the, the first category. Here's the second one, which is in the, the last part of chapter 6. Does anybody have any questions or comments before I move on to, to this? I just want to make sure here. Okay, the second one, our first one was our endurance in trying circumstances. The second one is our call to be wholly separate from the world. You probably, or another way to put this is, our call not to be unequally yoked. Now let me read verse 14, and then we'll have a little bit of conversation here. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now, I have a problem with this, just like I have a problem with the now is the favorable time, now is the day of salvation. Because if that verse, now is the favorable time, now is the day of salvation, is always just defaulted to evangelism mindset, then this verse, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, is always defaulted to marriage. Marriage prospects, right? What Paul is saying here is don't be married to unbelievers. Well, that idea is certainly biblical. He does go into that in other places of the Bible. But I don't think Paul has suddenly moved into marriage advice here right in the middle of his conversation with the Corinthians. Now, that could be a good application. But here's the issue is that when we think about the idea of unequally yoked, Many of us, we only think about it in terms of marriage. That's the only category that we think about it in. But Paul is talking to the whole body here, and he's applying it to the whole life. So in other words, application of marriage, sure, but not restricted to the idea of marriage. Here's his um, contrast that he makes here. Read that again. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? 
What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now, what Paul is not calling us to do is to take on the mindset of escapism. Now, you see this happen, I think about one example in our own country, the Amish, right? No offense to the Amish, no, no intended insult, but God is not telling us, pack up your bags and head for the hills, right? Have no more association with the world whatsoever. Or you see it like in the, the cults, you think about the, the Jim Jones cult right back in the day where like we're really the only holy people, let's actually just flee the country and go to our own little compound course that ended very badly for everybody because they all died. They, all, they did drink the Kool-Aid in that, in that sense. It was a mass murder or mass suicide. It depends on what historian you ask as to what really happened there. But that, that's a good, that's a good uh, demonstration of, of what we shouldn't do, right? It doesn't work out when we just say, run for the hills, let's make our own little compound here. But what we're thinking about is relationship and communion. Notice these words that Paul uses, partnership, fellowship, accord or agreement, portion, and then agreement again. All of these words are words of reconciliation. All of them are words that demonstrate what has happened in us. How are we described in terms of our relationship with God. At one time, it was rebellion, enmity, hostility, disagreement, but we've been reconciled to God. Now, what describes us and our relationship with God is no longer rebellion and enmity and all the rest, but partnership, fellowship, agreement, portion, share. All of these things demonstrate the fact that we have been given new hearts to not only be in good standing with God, but communing with Him and participating in what He's doing. And what Paul is saying here is don't take that communion bond, don't take that relationship, that reconciliation, and sever it to be reconciled with the world. That's the wrong way to do it. And that's what the emergent church, that's what this new um, movement of Christianity, especially in our country, is let's relate to the world and then take them up in baby steps and then, you know, let's have a big hug with God eventually. But let's meet them where they're at and be in fellowship with them. That's not the way that our ministry is supposed to be. That's not the way our evangelism is supposed to be. Our ministry is one of reconciliation to God, and we as God's people are calling the world to be reconciled to God. We don't sever what is true of us with God to be in communion with the world, because as the Word of God says, especially in James, um, he calls himself a friend of the world, is an enemy of God. You can't have it both ways. And so, if in one sense... We demonstrate our ministry and we share this news of reconciliation to God by our endurance and participation in trials. 
The other way is removing ourselves from unholy circumstances. Now that one, if we want to call it the peer pressure syndrome, is one that's really tough because it's one that so many of us cave into all the time. You may meet someone, someone who is, seems like when they go through trials, they're just patient. They just go through them with, with, a, with a grace. And then when it comes to this situation, these circumstances, these people, it's like they just immediately cave in. Or maybe it's you. Maybe that's how you are. Or it could be the other way around. Maybe we are good at saying, oh, I'm, I'm not going to drink at all because every drop is alcoholism. Or, well, I'm not going to watch anything that's not rated G because everything defaults to pornography, right? Having these like high-end, like, I'm not going to be anywhere near that. But then as soon as a trial hits, you just unleash. You just go crazy. What Paul is calling us to is a consistency, a well-roundedness. It shouldn't be, well, I'm the, I'm the endurance ministry guy, or I'm the remove myself from unholy situations guy. It should be both and. Both of these are what God has called us to. Both of these scenarios are the ways that we call others to be reconciled to God by our Christian witness. This is what he says in verse the end of verse, uh, or second half of verse 16, when he says, we are the temple of the living God. He quotes two passages. First, he quotes Leviticus 26, 12, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then he quotes Isaiah 52, 11, therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So how do we know if he's really calling us to be separate and to go out from them? How do we know that he's not calling us to be like the Amish or to be like the escapists that just run, let's just flee society altogether? Well, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he had every opportunity to pray for us to be taken out of this world. But he actually says explicitly the opposite. He says, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but I ask that you keep them from the evil one. And then he actually says, Behold, I send them out into the world. We're called to be sent into the world as Christian witnesses. So what is being said here in terms of our being separate from them is not geography, but it's our involvement and participation in what the world does. And that is tough, because I don't know if you know this, but we're in the world. We're surrounded by the world. We can't walk out of here without being in the world. We're in the world right now, even as we're here at Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church. So there's two ways that we are supposed to be God's witnesses to demonstrate His ministry of reconciliation and Paul is pleading that we don't receive the grace of God in vain. We have a responsibility to grace. And the way that we receive it in vain is when we blow it in these two areas, these two primary areas that he's talking to us of. And I would be at fault if I didn't read the first verse of chapter 7. 
This is one of those instances where we have to remember that chapters and verses are good um, tools or reference points, but they're not inspired numbers, right? They're just a reference point. And if you watch the flow of Paul's argument and Paul's words, we don't want to stop the conversation in the last verse of chapter 6. We want to read the first verse of chapter 7. Here's his conclusion to what he said. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's a good conclusion to this, and it highlights two things. We have a responsibility of grace, but even this responsibility is not, is not based on works. It's not based on performance. It's based on God's promises. That's what causes us to participate in this. Since we have these promises... He doesn't say since we have these marching orders. He doesn't say since we have these high expectations. He says since we have these promises. Since we have this grace given to us, therefore let us participate in it. Let us fulfill our responsibility. Because even what we're doing is what God is doing in us. It's not here's what God's done in us, now it's our job to do all this. It's here's what God has done in us to equip us with Him to fulfill His purposes. So it's all of grace. We don't abandon grace once we get it. We're participating in it. <clears throat> Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Easiest way to understand that is simply this, our sanctification. In this life, we've been justified. We know we'll be glorified. But the ministry of today is one of sanctification. God has put us right here, right now, living right here and right now, to grow in holiness, to be more like Jesus Christ. And we don't do that abstractly. We do it as we participate in what God is doing. What God is doing globally and what He's doing particularly in and through us. And that will all come to a resting place in the world around us, what we participate in as we minister in this life. So it's a beautiful picture, I think, in chapter six and that last verse of chapter, or that first verse of chapter seven, that we see the full scope of why Paul has this heartfelt conversation with the Corinthians. Because he's saying, Do you see how big a deal this is? Do you see what we get to participate in? That's that heartfelt conversation. So he's saying, don't, don't abandon the life that God's called you to today. Don't default to looking at that last day way off in the distance. Look at what God's doing right now. Yes, we should celebrate what is coming for us. Yes, we should celebrate what will be true of us in our glory. But don't abandon the glory of what God is doing right here and right now in this life. That's the plea Paul's making to the Corinthians. That's the heartfelt conversation he's having with them. And it's true of us if we've been reconciled to God. So it's our conversation too. It's what he's saying to us as well. So I think that's a good place to end. And now you have a good template of what this whole letter is about. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to episode 21 from this podcast. I hope you have enjoyed the content and I hope you have learned a lot more about the book of 2 Corinthians, especially what you just got done listening to in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. I hope you see how we have a responsibility to the grace that God has given to us. And we together through prayer, through the study of his word, and through our everyday dependence upon him can be faithful representatives of who God is and what he has done in our lives. I'll leave you with this. If you have been intrigued by the kind of content that you found on this podcast so far, and especially if you're new here to the Better Bible Reading podcast, I want to invite you to head on over to betterbiblereading.com and you can either find it on the homepage or you can just type it in betterbiblereading.com forward slash ask. Um, That is my very easy and accessible way for you to send in to me any kind of Bible or theology questions that you have that you would like to see answered. Now, I'd be certainly glad to send you a quick email reply with some Bible verses, but I'd like to take it a step further and actually make a podcast episode dedicated to answering your question. I would be glad to do that. I'd be honored to do that. And I would invite you all to think of some kind of content you would like to see me cover. And I will do that for you because this podcast is for your benefit. So thank you so much for listening. Again, head on over to betterbiblereading.com forward slash ask. If you've really been blessed by this podcast, leave me a review on iTunes. But enjoy the rest of your day and God bless you.